Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of Everything Compliance, Tom and Jay take a look at corruption leading to the fall of Afghanistan, Nick Casson in the FCPA blog. Does HSBC facilitate cybercrime? An article from the Risk and Compliance Journal Europe. The Pearson SEC Enforcement Action. We have three articles, Matt Kelly and Radical Compliance, Tom and Matt on the Compliance Into the Week's podcast, and Kevin LaCroix in the DNO Diary. What's the role of trust with a CCO? Jeff Kaplan explores in the Conflict of Interest blog. What about fraud during the pandemic? James Rutolo explores in CCI. Inefficiency in AML enforcement, Maria Avastrapovola. Uh, looks at that in CCI as well. The SEC is coming after cryptocurrencies. Aaron Nicodemus reports in Compliance Week. What boards of directors need to know before, during, and after M&A? Maria Castanon-Motes and Leah Malone in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. Who is your crisis management team? Eden Jalot in Forbes.com. And K2 Integrity <clears throat> reports on the CFIUS annual report from 2020. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode of This Week in FCPA for uh, the week ending August 20th, 2021, episode 265, the Personal Responsibility Edition. As Texas's beloved governor, Mr. Personal Responsibility himself, comes down with COVID after refusing to engage in personal responsibility, Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself, are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eye in this, the Personal Responsibility Edition. Jay, what say you in sunny and or smoky Southern California? It's sunny where we are, and this week I'd also like to say it's the back-to-school edition because M&M are finally in school after 18 months, so we're psyched about that. And let's get started with the first story, Tom. So, Jay, first up, we have a story from our good friend Dick Casson at the FCPA blog, which uh, relates to probably the biggest story of the week other than missional Mr. Personal Responsibility coming down with COVID, and that's the fall of Afghanistan. And there's been a lot written on this. 
some uh, horrible and terrible humanitarian crises ongoing. But Dick, I thought, hit it right on the head when he said that the reason uh, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban again was corruption. And this assessment was made by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction uh, in 2008. And since 2001, Congress has appropriated some $143 billion, that's the B word, billion, for Afghanistan reconstruction, uh, despite constant promises from Afghani leaders to fight corruption, uh, they've really made no progress or little to no progress. And the uh, Inspector General, uh, John Sopko, said that corruption substantially undermined the U.S. mission in Afghanistan from the very beginning. Uh, this was uh, reemphasized in reports to the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration. So um, it's clear to me that who lost Afghanistan was, uh, first of all, the Afghans, but endemic corruption. So check out Dick's article. I think it speaks for a lot of people in the compliance world of why uh, corruption is so invidious literally across the globe and it can lead to criminality, it can lead to terrorism, and in Afghanistan it led to the overthrow of the government. Jay, what do you have for us? We're checking in with the Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. Uh, it's a blog we cite from time to time. The article's written by Alfredi Sixt, and they ask, is HSBC a dirty bank as an accomplice of big-style cyber criminals? HSBC, one of the world's largest banks, is known for being a, quote, dirty, unquote, bank. It's public knowledge that HSBC for decades has laundered hundreds of millions of dollars from Mexican drug cartels, and HSBC took a prominent role in about all scandals which evolved during the past several years, including Panama Papers, Swiss leaks. So it's probably not surprising that this dirty bank is also heavily involved and cyber criminal activities. Law enforcement worldwide is emphasizing that the extent of cybercrime is progressing at an incredibly fast pace. As a matter of fact, it's not only the pandemic, but cyber criminals are also becoming more agile, exploiting new technologies with lightning speed. Transnational criminal networks operate across the world, coordinating intricate attacks in a matter of minutes and damaging and hurting people worldwide. But do not think that only the creative scammers are to be blamed. We also can blame the financial system for not caring about their contribution to the raids going on by the scammers. And we can also blame financial supervisory authorities worldwide for not having addressed the cybercrime issue properly in the past years. Banks are supposed to be gatekeepers for the financial system. The use of the incumbent financial system is one of the most critical success factors for the scammers in addition to sophisticated software tools, aggressive marketing, fraudulent affiliate campaigns, and unscrupulous call center employees. Even if cryptocurrencies are involved, the scammers always need the incumbent financial system to cash out. Without the processing of illicit proceeds used to fund serious criminal activities, the lifeblood of scammers' operations is disrupted. 
The role of being the gatekeeper for any misuse of incumbent financial systems for banks and financial institutions cannot be overemphasized, and stopping the financial industry to support the scammers will most probably turn out to be the only possibility to stop them. But right now, by checking out the available bank documentation from victims and prosecutors, it gets evident that banks like Deutsche Bank, ING, and HSBC are just marketing heavily on their websites about the great global standardized AML programs, but evidently do not apply them. They just don't care to do so. HSBC's involvement in fraud. For example, notwithstanding HSBC's public marketing campaign to have implemented and abide by state-of-the-art compliance programs, the bank and its subsidiaries have paid over $6.5 billion U.S. dollars in civil penalties since 2000 and a total of 59 violations that have been registered. The author claims that HSBC either knew about the wrongdoing or at least willfully accepted negligent regarding the fraudulent activities within its enterprise related to two fraud schemes. Therefore, they assume that HSBC participated in an association, in fact, enterprise with TCOs and made themselves accomplices in defrauding thousands of unsuspected European investors. Based on their findings regarding the involvement of, above all, HSBC Hong Kong and scamming activities, EFRI, an association based in Vienna, Austria, has set up in the spring of 2020, has filed an extensive criminal complaint regarding the involvement of HSBC in scamming businesses with relevant authorities in Hong Kong and Tom, uh, Hong Kong and Europe. Back to you, Tom. Jay, uh, next up, uh, we take a look at the Pearson Securities and Exchange Enforcement Action. And Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about this earlier this week. Um, Kevin LaCroix also wrote about it from his unique perspective in the DNO diary. Kevin is a uh, DNO insurance uh, Uber guru, as well as all other types of insurance. If you don't subscribe to his blog, you really should, because he ta- talks a lot about white collar crime uh, and corruption issues from a really different perspective, and it can be very useful to you as a compliance professional. Uh, and then Matt and I uh, podcasted about it on this week's Compliance Into the Weeds, but the Pearson uh, SEC enforcement action was from Pearson being hacked and then hiding it, uh, not making a public announcement, although personal identifiable information was stolen in this hack. And we can contrast that, Jay, to a story we're not talking about this week, but happened yesterday. I think uh, T-Mobile made a public announcement that some 40 million customers' personal identifiable information had been hacked. So um, pretty dramatic uh, difference. But Pearson was fined a million dollars uh, they it did not uh, patch uh, the system that was hacked. Uh, so that was another thing the SEC really took them to task for. But it's clear, Jay, that companies that are hacked have to notify customers. They have to make an announcement about it. And they can't, uh, as Pearson did, claim in both uh, Q's and K's and in investor calls, uh, we're fine, it's all fine, everything's fine, are you fine? Uh, that just doesn't cut it from a securities law perspective because you have to disclose uh, material uh, 
negative material information as well as positive material information. So uh, check out uh, any of those sites to learn more about it. If you like to uh, consume content via audio, uh, Compliance Into the Weeds podcast this week is really one for you. But uh, check out Matt's blog post and also Kevin's blog post as well. What do you have next for us, Jay? Uh, Tom, next we're going to check in with our friend Jeff Kaplan and his Conflict of Interest blog. And we're going to find out about trust and the CCO. Trust has always played a vital role in developing and maintaining civilizations and other organized groups, be they large or small, of humans. But it seems like trust in business is as important now as it's ever been before. As described in the Harvard Corporate Governance blog by PwC's Paul De Nicola, confidence in the institutions that form the bedrock of society is perilously low. Surveys show that many people have lost faith in the, in the government, the media, and the police, among other institutions. Meanwhile, corporations have emerged as leaders. They're now the most trusted institution in the U.S., according to the Edelman Trust Barometer. Maintaining this trust and seizing the opportunities it presents should be a priority for every company. Another important development in this area is the recent publication of Why Trust Matters, an Economist's Guide to the Ties That Bind Us by Benjamin Ho of Vassar College. In this book, he examines the economics and history of trust in a wide variety of settings. Further, he focuses on various aspects of trusting institutions that are known for expertise, a subject of particular relevant to the present, and how we can do more to trust one another generally. Dean Nicola suggests many companies can indeed make trustworthiness a priority, focusing on corporate culture, human capital, and social action. To this, Jeff would also add, to the extent that it has not already been done, expanding the remit of chief ethics and compliance officers to promote trustworthiness at their individual organizations. Companies should consider including trust issues in the CECO's job description, risk assessment, training and communications, Personal evalu- personnel evaluations, and board reporting. These and other common safe measures can help strengthen a company's trustworthiness. Back to you, Tom. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. James Rutulo uh, wrote an interesting article. He's with Grant Thornton in uh, CCI, and his article was around the fraud prevention uh, situation we find ourselves in after COVID-19 and the PPP, uh, personal protection, paycheck protection. He uh, he believes that this has created a a really generation of fraudsters who have cut their teeth on this, on fraud, and companies need to be aware of this and ready for what he calls the next normal of fraud, not the new normal, the next normal said that you need to update your fraud awareness training. You need to enhance your fraud risk assessment. You need to upgrade your fraud anti-fraud technology and to trust the fundamentals by revisiting the five pillars of the COSO fraud risk management framework, including governance, risk assessments, controls, investigations, and monitoring. If you act according to these pillars and principles, he believes that you'll have a strong risk program. Jay, what struck me was how close that is to many of the elements of an effective compliance program. Our friend Jonathan Marks, a certified fraud examiner, often talks about uh, corruption being a subset of fraud. And remember, bribery and corruption, the theft 
of company monies is to create a pot of money to pay a bribe. The theft and fraud is employee keeping that money. So uh, I don't know if it's fortunately or unfortunately, fraud is a much more uh, prevalent crime than corruption, but it's something that every company faces and they need to be aware of it. Uh, We're going to go back in again to corporate compliance insights. We have an article by Maria Evstorpova, and we're going to take a look at inefficiency in AML enforcement. In September 2020, BuzzFeed and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists published information on over 2,100 leaked documents from the U.S. Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, known as FinCEN. This uh, trove of documents became the FinCEN files, and they were revealed to show the high levels of suspicious activity reports, SARS, filed by banks, which saw as which are seen as an indication of widespread money laundering. By law, banks are required to file SARS, but it's important that these reports are not mistaken for proof that a crime has taken place. The fact is, is that the proportion of SARS resulting from genuine nefarious activity, as opposed to a bank simply filling filing any potential suspicious transactions to meet its regulatory obligations is not known. Indeed, the banks involved in the leak may have been acting with best intentions, with many filing defensive SARS as soon as the internal control frameworks identified any suspicious activity. Conflictingly, however, leaked data analyzed by Kroll suggests that a number of banks reporting the largest volumes of suspicious transactions or with the largest values, were subsequently fined by regulators for AML violations. The leaks actually give us little new information about money laundering. Instead, they have highlighted the fact that current AML systems are not functioning functioning as optimally as they should. Let's look at risk mitigation. The FinCEN leaks confirm that there is a clear profile for, quote, a risky, unquote, transaction, but this doesn't mean the banks should limit their activities or make absolute prohibitions against these transaction characteristics. Refusing to deal with transactions in certain markets is simply not a realistic solution. Part of the solution lies in developing strong controls and infrastructure, which require active engagement with AML procedures. As such, the overriding message to take from last year's leaks is that filing SARS should not be seen as an onerous obligation, but instead as an opportunity to alert relevant authorities to suspicious activities. Overcoming key challenges. In order to achieve this goal, banks need to begin by looking at their current system. Kroll's 2020 Global Enforcement Review revealed some of the most common errors among banks that have received AML fines. The failures identified by regulators represent several common operating weaknesses that prevent successful reporting of SARS. Common problems included inefficient transaction monitoring arrangements, inadequate resource allocations, issues with customer data, and problems integrating technology. These challenges can all be resolved through implementation of transaction monitoring systems, best practice models for AML. While there's certainly some work to be done by the banks, the support of regulators and enforcement agencies is also vital. The UK currently has the leading best practices model for how regulators, financial intelligence units, FIUs, and the private sector can collaborate successfully. In 2015, the UK launched the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, JMLIT, 
creating a transparent, safe, and legally sanctioned environment where the public and private sector can share information on crime typologies and develop new methods of detection. While there are still shortcomings with their system, as only the largest financial institutions in the UK can currently join, this means that smaller banks miss out on the benefits. The primary aim of any AML framework should be to combat money laundering in the most effective manner possible. No approach will be perfect, but if the current way of working continues to produce suboptimal outcomes, then banks need to change their perspective on AML and reevaluate their strategies. Tom? Jay, next we have a story from our colleague Aaron Nicodemus at Compliance Week, and he takes a look at cryptocurrency regulation and enforcement under SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. And certainly anyone who's been watching the SEC the first six months of this year recognizes that Chairman Gensler really believes that cryptocurrency is the Wild West and needs uh, a a firm hand of regulation. But Aaron goes back further and says uh, that Chairman Gensler has been sort of preaching this same uh, message to the choir uh, for quite some time, and this should come as no experience. The issue is whether cryptocurrencies were a security, and there was a Supreme Court case uh, literally 80 years ago which developed the Howey test, and the Howey test basically says if you have a contract to invest and you do invest and you make a profit off the work of others, then what you bought is a security, and therefore it can be regulated if it's a public company or another type of security by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, Cryptocurrency uh, aficionados believe that uh, their cryptocurrency is indeed currency and not assets, and therefore not subject to SEC regulation, but uh, they've yet to come up with a coherent legal position that they've been able to either convince the SEC or convince... um, a judge of that. So uh, uh, Aaron really uh, says, and I think he's absolutely correct, Chairman Kinsler has made clear that he believes regulation is necessary and that uh, although the cryptocurrency folks don't want that heavy hand of the SEC, Chairman Kinsler believes that investor protection is more critical and anything else. So I expect to see a fair amount of that uh, going forward. If you're a SEC white-collar defense lawyer, I'm sure this is on your radar. And it's going to be interesting to see, Jay, if any of this moves into more directly into our world of anti-bribery and uh, uh, ABC uh, compliance. But it wouldn't surprise me because I think uh, we may see some bribes paid with cryptocurrencies. Obviously, that wouldn't be used as a uh, security be used as a monetary source, but perhaps uh, somehow it would be used as a security uh, as, as, because it's an investment. So uh, maybe instead of dishing out stock for a bribe, they'll dish out cryptocurrency uh, or Bitcoin. So what do you have next for us, Jay? Next on our weekly check-in with the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, we have a story by Maria Castanon-Motes and Leah Malone. And they ask, what do boards need to know before, during, after an M&A transaction? The COVID-19 pandemic and its follow-on effects have changed the economic situation for most companies. Many are experiencing financial hardship and depressed income, but others have a ton of cash. And unique opportunities may be available to those firms with capitals to invest. Making an acquisition is a major step for a company 
for all the possible benefits. However, there are many challenges that can derail the deal and destroy anticipated shareholder value. Navigating those pitfalls is vital to an acquisition delivering on its potential. Here are some of the steps that boards should consider at each stage of an acquisition. Before making an acquisition, one of the most important responsibilities a board has is to oversee the company's strategy. That includes understanding if and how different growth options, including acquisitions, are part of that strategy. Which deals should boards get involved in? First, it's important to agree that when a board should be involved at a certain point of an acquisition. Not all deals are equal, and knowing in advance what factors trigger a board's involvement will prevent confusion about the board's role. Those factors may be quantitative, like deal size, or they may be qualitative, such as when a deal is important to executing the company's established strategy. During the acquisition, once a board understands management's rationale for an acquisition and how it fits with the company needs, it, the board needs to review benefits and risks of the deal. Risks are real and can affect value. These range from the target's vulnerability to lawsuits, underpayment of taxes, or underperforming certain parts of the organization to the presence of activist investors. Our target's environmental record has also become increasingly importing. Uh, important. rather. Depending on the risk, the board may want to discuss whether the target should be acquired or whether another type of deal structure makes more sense, such as a joint venture or an alliance. Look for culture clashes. The due diligence phase is also a time for directors to raise issues of culture. Ideally, the board should confirm that management is considering how the two cultures will align and how they can be integrated. Management should be able to share with the board a clear understanding of the target's culture and how it will be treated moving forward. This culture audit is important in developing a plan to assimilate the organization's post-acquisition. After the acquisition, in most deals, this period after the acquisition closes is crucial. Failure to successfully integrate the employees, processes, and systems <clears throat> and culture from each organization can seriously hamper a deal's benefits. The integration challenge. Talent is often a major concern in acquisitions. Some executives and their teams are key to the deal value. Others may not be needed beyond a transaction transition point. Management needs to figure out who fits into what category. <clears throat> Excuse me. And board should also ask how management plans to align the companies. In cross-border deals, cultural concerns may include managing different worldviews along with work, workplace environments and practices. Boards need to be aware of the cultural issues that may arise with acquisitions. Keeping all audiences informed and keeping up after the fact. Monitoring the acquisition post-deal allows boards to assess whether the deal met the objectives and understand how much value it ultimately added. Determining what made a specific acquisition a success also can help improve the overall process from strategy to integration, and this will better arm the board and company for future deals. The board should also take this opportunity to look at itself post-acquisition, and some companies may benefit by changing the board makeup after a large or transformational deals. In conclusion, when exploring an acquisition, exploring what an acquisition means for your company, it's a big step forward towards growth. The facts that authors discuss in this piece will help better prepare boards to address challenges that come with any acquisition, whether during a global pandemic or not. Tom? 
Jay, uh, next up we have a story, uh, article rather, from uh, both of our friends, a friend of both of ours, I should say, Eden Jalot. And Eden is one of the top crisis management professionals around. And she wrote a piece in Forbes.com for the uh, beginner, the crisis communications beginner. So if you are just new to this or don't know where to start, this is the article for you. She says that when a crisis occurs, literally the first minutes, but definitely the first hour is what sets the tone, and that's called the golden hour. And she says you have to make the most of your golden hour. You don't try to create a crisis management team. You you call your crisis management team, which has already been determined, and you go. So start with the crisis management team and go. Formulate your initial strategy, which includes establishing your goal, trying to determine if your goal is realistic, gather the facts you can, and never base what you say or do on rumors. Uh, Figure out who your key audiences are, your key stakeholders, obviously employees, but also customers, vendors, shareholders, investors, uh, the social media community, and, and the print media, traditional media. How are you going to communicate your message? Uh, it may have to be done with some sensitivity due to the situation. So you certainly need to have a professional. And then who's going to deliver that message? So uh, great stuff from Eden. Uh, if you've never checked out uh, her website, uh, go to Jalot Communications. She has a wealth of material. She's a, a multi-book published author in this field. She's one of the nicest ladies. I, I've only met her virtually, but she's always been just charming and uh, she knows her stuff is about the best way I can say it. And if it's all hit the fan, uh, she's the she's the person you want to call. JD, what's our last story you have for us? Sure, Tom. Um, we're going to check in with uh, K2 Integrity, and they have a client alert on Cepheus publishing their 2020 report. The 2020 unclassified report published by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States which I just said was Cepheus, provides investors with information regarding the approval rate for the streamlined declarations review process. The 2020 annual report was the first report following publication of the updated Cepheus regulations from February of 2020. Cepheus continued to mitigate a similar number of transactions as in 2019, and the president blocked one transaction. CFIUS required mitigation terms in 2020 at a rate comparable to 2019, which indicates that the organization is adhering to its mandate to protect U.S. national security while maintaining an open foreign investment environment. Here's a summary of key findings. Full notices reviewed by CFIUS declined 20% in 2020, 187, compared to 2019, 231. An expected increase in mitigation agreements following the passage and implementation of the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, FIRMA, did not materialize. And the Biden administration is expected to increasingly focus on targeted policy tools to identify and address national security risks, and CFIUS will continue to play an important role. Here's some further findings from the annual report. The number of de- Declarations assessed by CFIUS rose by 34% in 2019 to 
Importantly, in 2020, CFIUS completed action on 64% of declarations filed compared to 37% from 2019. If this trend continues, council and investors may consider this streamlined process as a more effective clearance mechanism for low-risk in investment transactions. CFIUS reviews of Chinese origin investment transactions have declined substantially from 2017 to 2020. Mitigation agreements often require significant data access restrictions or oversight mechanisms, which can be difficult and costly for businesses to implement. In 2020, CFIUS cleared 16 transactions with mitigation agreements and permitted transaction parties to abandon a transaction with condition in six cases. Finally, broader implications for transaction parties. Parties will need to carefully evaluate national security risks arising from investment transactions in a systematic manner to understand how CFIUS processes may impact potential deals. And as the Biden administration builds out new policy tools to address national security concerns, parties should be mindful of parallel national security processes focused on trade and investment that may cut across several agencies. Tom, that's our last story. What do we have for podcasts and events? So, Jay, last week I had my 200th anniversary episode on innovation and compliance, uh, but this week I had perhaps my most favorite interview. I know all you, you love all your children equally, but some children you love more than others. Uh, this episode featured Dennis Kucinich. Anyone who's followed politics literally for the last 50 years knows who Dennis Kucinich is. He was a boy wonder mayor of Cleveland, He was a congressman from Ohio. He was a senator from Ohio. He was a presidential candidate. And for the compliance community listening, he wrote a fascinating book called The Division of Power and Light, which detailed the fight he had when he was the mayor of Cleveland to keep the Cleveland Municipal Electric Company alive. Uh, It was a no-holds-barred, brass-knuckled, life-threatening situations uh, literally bags of cash out of the trunk of a car story. And it's, uh, uh, and it's just as relevant today because we had sentencing for uh, bribery and corruption around public utilities this, this year. Uh, it, it was a, a great honor to interview him. He could not have been more gracious. He obviously knows the story inside and out. Uh, but get this, Jay, when I asked him what the bottom line was, he quoted a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young song. So how much better can it get than that? So check out Dennis Kucinich on uh, innovation and compliance. On the Compliance Life, this month I'm featuring uh, Courtney Nordrum. Courtney has just a great story, and this this episode is from Freddie Mac to, to the law, and she details that part of her journey. Uh, it's episode two. Uh, uh, so check out the Compliance Life in August featuring Courtney Nordrum. Uh, for those of you Greek and Roman historians out there, uh, Richard Lovins and I continue our exploration of Plutarch's lives. In this episode, it was the Greek Eumenides and the Roman Sertorius. So check that out. Uh, it was, frankly, two lesser-known uh, famous Greeks and Romans that uh, I was not aware of, but they had fascinating lives. Um, Compliance Week is having a um, open house this month. And you can get behind their firewall. You can check out all the things that Compliance Weeks has to offer. And I've got a link to it in the show notes. 
And then finally, Jay, I hope you saw the breaking news story on the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, uh, uh, produced and directed by Tony Now. It was a uh, fabulous uh tongue-in-cheek parody of breaking news around uh, my uh, book, my most recent book, The Compliance Handbook, second edition. And Tony did a great job. We have a special cameo appearance uh, by now fully employed uh, daughter, Paris Fox. She got her first job, so uh, but she wants to go to grad school. So, you know, buy the book so you can help send her to grad school. But she makes a special cameo, which I think steals the entire... Um, Show And then finally, Jay, um, I am uh, rolling out the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition in Brazil. Um, the law firm of Azevedo Sedi and partner Isabel Franco and the Charles River Associates are sponsoring a webinar, a Zoom webinar, announcing the book. So if you're listening to this podcast in Brazil or anywhere else, I hope you'll join us because the podcast will be in English. If you're in Brazil and only speak Portuguese, there's going to be a simultaneous uh, translation, so you can check that out. And Isabel and three of her colleagues are going to question me about the book, really focusing on uh, how it can be used in the international setting. And obviously, Jay, uh, uh, you, you've worked internationally and you've been involved in international cases. And certainly AMI has been involved, so you know uh, that's uh, a, big, a big part of it is having that compliance program in place for your international subsidiaries. So uh, check out the uh, uh, Zoom webinar. I've got links to it. You don't have to register. You just have to email uh, Azevedo Law Firm, and we've got the link uh, in the show notes. So, Jay, what do you have for us to wrap us up? So, uh, as you all know, Tom folks, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm always Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. And you can reach me at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 265 for the week ending August 20th, 2021, the Personal Responsibility Edition. As always, Tom and I appreciate you spending part of your week or weekend with us. And we look forward to connecting with you next week when we take a look at This Week and FCPA. Take care and have a great evening. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.